Welcome to this latest edition of the ianabernethy.com podcast. In this podcast, we're going to be answering your questions. Hello, I'm Ian Abernethy and thank you for joining me on this uh, latest edition of the podcast. As you've just heard, it's going to be a Q&A podcast this month. It's uh, over a year, can you believe, since we did one of these. And uh, So what we do is we ask for questions via the website, Facebook and Twitter. Uh, people submit their um, questions and obviously we get through as many as we can uh, in the time that we've got available. So thank you to everyone who submitted questions. I'm sorry that we didn't get to, uh, to them all, but we did... Uh, managed to cover a wide range of topics and there was a lot of interesting questions uh, asked. As I always feel the need to say when we do these podcasts, I'm not for one second saying that my answer is the definitive one, but nevertheless, hopefully you find my answers uh, interesting. Uh, so I'm not saying I'm always right, I'm just saying you know that uh, this is my view and I hope that you find my views interesting. Um, okay, before we leave the introduction and get into the questions, I'd just like to take this opportunity to thank everyone for their support of the World Combat Association this year. Uh, as you may or may not know, for quite a while I've thought there was a need for an international body that would serve the needs of pragmatic martial artists like us. And uh, the WCA was set up in that regard with myself as the chief international instructor and Jeff Thompson and Peter Considine as uh, the joint chief instructors. Uh, it's been going from strength to strength. We've got members all over the globe now. We've um, had lots of syllabuses approved over the last year. It, it, it's it, it been really good. We've been added quite a few new exclusive videos to the members and instructor zones on there, so providing hopefully good quality information for people as well. So it's going really well. So if you're not yet a member or you know you don't know anything about it, then just pop along to worldcombatassociation.com. And you can see all that info there. You can read an introduction from myself and Peter on, on there as well. Um, and maybe see if it's it's for you. Um, lots of different ways in which you can join as well. So, But the key thing is, you know, those that are already members, massive thanks to you. Because, you know, I had this vision of this worldwide group that would cater for the needs of people like us. And it's taken shape. And I'm, I'm really thrilled about that. It's nice to know that I'm not alone in thinking we need something like this. So, yeah, okay, just, you know, at the end of the year, it seemed appropriate to drop that in. But uh, I'll keep this introduction real brief, and I'll hand you over to myself and Becky, and we'll get a start on your questions. Okay, so as we just mentioned uh, in the introduction, we've got a load of questions to get through from Facebook, uh, Twitter, and emails covering a lot of topics. So uh, Becky will read out the questions and then I'll, uh, I'll uh, start working my way through them. So if we start with the first one, please. Okay, the first question is from Andy Chapman and he wants to know uh, physiological differences between high kicks and low kicks, uh, for example, Mawashigeri, and whether there is, a scientific, there is scientific evidence that one improves the other. Yeah, well, so I'm, I get the, uh, the point being made there, is it? Uh, it's often said, obviously, that if you practice your high kicks, it makes your lower kicks uh, better. And there's always a dispute about what kind, what height you should be practicing at. So obviously, for self-defense purposes, I mean, there's an argument that says you just shouldn't kick in self-defense circumstances, you know, unless the guy's downed or or fallen down, you know, as a, as a, a finisher. But if you are going to kick, you know, the standard advice I would give is you kick lower than mid thigh, because then you don't have the risk of the 
like uh, the leg being uh, caught. And the it's easy to regain your balance as well because your foot's not that high off the ground. Kicking head height, self-defense-wise, would be high risk. However, kicking head height for fighting purposes, so competitively or in the dojo or whatever else, you know, um, that... It does have its place, I, I, I think, you know, and I, certainly in my own dojo, we do practice high kicking, but we're always mindful of context. Now, obviously, if you're practicing uh, the kick head height or higher, then your leg muscles need to be stronger and they need to be more flexible as well. So that is a more demanding form of training and therefore it should improve the muscles and therefore the kick should be stronger. As regards scientific evidence, I don't think there is uh, any. And, and one thing that might be overlooked here as well is, in order to develop the ability to kick head height in the first place, people have to practice kicks a lot. So the guy who can kick head height is probably practicing his kicking a lot more than the guy can, who can barely kick thigh height. So I, I would suggest that you know part of it as well, not just the physiological changes, it'll be the volume of practice that's resulted in those changes that, that'll will determine it. So for me, you know, there's no need to practice high kicking, but my experience has been that those that do tend to be better kickers overall. Um, and there is enjoyment in doing it. In terms of scientific evidence, I'm, I'm not aware of, of any that um, uh, supports that one. So it's always anything else, just mindful, of, uh, always mi being mindful of context, I think. Okay, and uh, question number two is from Ben Pethick, and he says, Hi, Ian, my question is, what are your top five martial arts films? <laughs> uh, do you know, it's one of these things, I always think it's heresy, really, but I don't like martial arts films. Um, I, 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 you know, they've all got essentially the same plot, haven't they? You know, good guy gets kind of beaten up, mm. learns from wizened old master, beats up bad guys, you know. Um, to various degrees, that's all of them. Uh, I... Love Enter the Dragon. Uh, you know, that film was a major kind of inspiration to getting me into the martial arts in the first place. But I think that's just, it's a good film. You know, it's got martial arts in it, but it's a good film. Um, so that would be my number one. If I was to struggle to come up with others, I, 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 would, I would struggle to think of any. But one thing I've noticed of late, just to kind of answer a question with a question is, I, I wonder if martial arts films are now finished. Because uh, every film, more or less every film you see, the hero is a mar has got martial arts skills. So you know, you think if you watch, you know, all the superhero movies and Batman does that, and Jason Bourne's got super great, you know, martial arts skills. And um, I'm thinking of uh, Blades jumping to mind, you know, um, the um, you know the Vampire Hunter movies. Mm. Uh, and I was even I was watching the, the Hansel and Gretel. Uh, film recently which is you know it's a great film for those who haven't seen it and in that you know these again these witch hunters have got a plethora of martial arts skills and so have the witches so I just wonder if we're now at a point where martial arts are just so infused you don't really have the genre of martial arts movies anymore they're just in all movies you know what I mean you just tend to see it in in everything really nowadays I think so uh, yeah I don't really have a top five Enter the Dragon would be my number one but it's just because it's you know it's a good movie with martial arts rather than a martial arts movie really I guess so question three is from Paul Harrison. Uh, he asks, what is Bunkai Jitsu and how do people become qualified in it? Well, um, Bunkai Jitsu was the title I used for my first book. Uh, so literally translated, it would be something like the art of analysis. But, you know, the way Karateka use it, we regard Bunkai to be, you know, the techniques within the kata uh, uh, when applied with a partner and then the jitsu side of it you know the the pragmatic use of the techniques within the kata but it's not a system or a style you know i i i, I have my own take on karate that i do 
but that's not Bunkai Jitsu. Bunkai Jitsu is just literally the analysis and application of the techniques in kata. Um, so anybody can do that. Anyone who studies kata is effectively doing Bunkai Jitsu, whether they use that term for it or not. Uh, in terms of how do you become qualified in it, I, I do have a uh, instructor's program for those that are interested in my approach to kata. Because I've always said I've got two things. I've got my method, which is specifically what I teach my long-term students. And then I've got my approach, which is a broad way of doing things that people, if they want to take part of my approach and make them part of the, their method, then they can uh, become qualified in it. So I have a, uh, a two-tier instructor's program where we have an introductory level and then a full level. So hopefully I'm going to get some, I'm definitely going to be doing one in Germany um, for the German contingent, an instructor's course next year. And I hope to get another one done in the UK next year, because I think it's about three or four years since I last did one. So, um, so and there's certainly enough people qualified and interested now. So anyone who's interested in doing those, just keep an eye on the, the newsletters and the podcasts. And as soon as they're up and running, I'll, I'll let everybody know. So question number four is from Stephen Taylor. Hello Ian, my question is, do you believe there is a place for soft style martial arts training, for example, chi, Tai Chi, Qigong, meditation, etc. in self-defence? Well, in terms of soft style martial arts, absolutely. Uh, I, I know of a you know, number of practitioners of Bagua and things like that, you know, like soft styles who are, are ferocious, you know, really able uh, practitioners so um in terms of can those arts be applied effectively absolutely if you've got a good teacher who understands the context and how it should be used no problems with that um because again i have friends who practice those arts and I, I know firsthand how effective they can be uh in terms of uh, um the meditation aspect i don't really think that's got a relevance to self-defense apart from the fact it can make you a little bit kind of more chilled out and balanced so you're less likely to kick off over nothing and get involved in confrontations in the first place. Um, and I'm not a great believer in Qi Kung. I know that obviously lots of people do it and um, benefit from it, but I, I'm not, you know, I, it, for me, it, to improve my health and fitness, I'd, I'd, you know, I'll stretch, I'll, I'll go for a run, I'll lift some weights. I prefer to use those methods because they make more sense to my... Uh, western mind but i know again plenty of other people that like that stuff and find it find it beneficial so in terms of soft style martial arts being effective absolutely and the other elements you know the meditation side of it which i think that's something we should be doing anyway i mean it's scientifically shown to be good for your health it's good for your, your psychology uh, for how, how, you, how you feel on a day, day basis it's been proven to be as effective as uh, antidepressants in treating depression so in terms of improving your quality of life, I think these are things that we should work in there as well, as well as, you know, the practical application. Jim Woodcock, he asks question number five. Uh, does following basic self-protection principles, such as avoiding confrontation, seeing trouble before it starts and avoiding it, etc., end up leaving the student lacking in experience in this area? If so, what can be done about it? So I think I understand that question. So... See, it's one of these paradoxes we have, don't we? Because we, we tell people that, um, which it is, you know, for self-defence, the physical skills are the, they're the last ditch, everything else has gone wrong skills. Uh, and as martial artists, what we tend to do is we, we don't teach self-defence. We teach people how to physically protect themselves when everything else has gone wrong. Well, obviously, the analogy I use, that's like teaching an airline pilot just how to crash land. You know, it, 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 that's, that's not how it should be. 
um, or you know, teaching road safety by teaching people how to roll off of, over you know car bonnets. You just you don't do that. The aim is not to be in the situation in the first place. So for true self-protection teaching, we should be teaching things like you know um, awareness, um, avoidance, de-escalation skills, escape skills, all these these kind of things, because um, they're far more effective. It's a much more effective s- solution than the physical skills. However, you've then got the paradoxes. If someone's really good at awareness and avoidance, um, then they'll avoid lots of confrontations and then they won't have the physical experience of dealing with it. And as martial artists, we have this strange paradox there because on the one hand, we tell people don't get involved in fights. But on the other hand, we tell people that unless you've been involved in fights, you have no idea what you're talking about. You know, so to be an instructor with authority, you've got to have lots of fights. But you know, to, but you'll tell your students not to get involved in fights. It's it's a bit of a paradox. So the way I see it is, we should not be encouraging students to go out and get involved in real confrontations. Nor should we be un- unintentionally giving the message that there's some status to be gained through doing so. So I, I think what's the the way we do it is. We listen to those who have lots of first-hand experience. Normally, this is through, like, employment in uh, the security industry, you know. Um, and so we, we, ask, we, we ask them about their experiences. We understand what their experiences are of the physical side of it. Uh, and we ensure that our training takes all those experiences into effect, like they do with soldiers. They don't send soldiers out into war to learn how to fight. What they do is they say, right, from the lessons other people have learned, He's an effective training program that will prepare you. And I think that's kind of what we, we, we should be doing. And then we recreate those scenarios um, uh, in the dojo. So, again, they can have first-hand experience, if you like, um, of uh, uh, simulated um, confrontations within the dojo, which is hopefully, if we get the other elements right, will be the only um, violence a student will um, will experience unless they get you know very, very unlucky. So... Yeah, it, it, train to avoid it, make sure they've got the skills to avoid it. And then within the dojo, also make sure that we kind of practice, you know, what if everything else goes wrong? And we shouldn't, as I say, be giving the students the unintentional message that unless they've had lots of real fights, the skills are somehow not valid. Um, the, the, the time in the dojo should prepare them adequately. Question six is from Alan Evans. He says, hi, Ian, in your opinion, do you believe that if a student practices kata time and time again with real purpose and intensity without considering the application of the moves being practiced, that this alone would be enough to protect oneself in a combat situation and that the student would react appropriately in a subconscious manner? Or do you think that practicing kata without considering its applications is futile if what you're trying to achieve from it is self-preservation? B. That, that, that if, if, if you practice it without ever considering the applications and more importantly, without drilling those applications in context with a partner, it will not prepare you for, for um, a real situation. So to, to me, because there needs to be a process around kata and in a lot of cases when people teach it, there isn't. It's just a case of if you practice this kata somehow magically, we don't really understand the process and we won't really explain it, but somehow, when it all kicks off, those skills will naturally manifest. Um, I, I don't believe that. It, it, it's, I just don't even see how logically that could work. The way it should work is the students drill the kata, they drill the applications with the partner, they practice uh, varying those applications um, according to various scenarios, various objectives, you know, various sizes of partner, numbers of opponents, all that kind of stuff. And then they practice it again in live drills as well, like we were just talking about on the, the, the last question, 
without it being part of the full process, it won't develop the skills that we want. If we just do the solo reenactment, what you'll just get good at is the solo reenactment. And then to believe that that will somehow leap to being able to apply it with a partner subconsciously, I, I don't see it. Solo character, I think, has its place because it, it, it's a way of practicing uh, when we haven't got a partner. It's a way of uh, ensuring good muscle control. It's a way of uh, getting the right kind of physical fitness. It's a way of drilling the right kind of motions, right kind of body mechanics. And also, it, it, it gives us the correct intent. Because when I'm practicing with a partner, for example, let's say at the end move of Gankaku, Chinto Kata, there's a neck crank where you knee the partner on, or the enemy on the inside of the leg so you'll fall into the neck crank. So that's a really kind of brutal technique, right? Whenever I do that with a partner, I have to do it wrong. Because if I did it right, I'd end up injuring my partner severely, right? And this is one of the things we do in the martial arts. We consistently practice things incorrectly in order that we don't hurt our training partners, right? Which is how it should be. We should not be hurting training partners. But solo kata, therefore, gives us a chance to plug that gap by giving us the chance to mentally visualise doing the motion with the correct mindset and with full intent. So there's a place for solo kata in the mix. It should be there, obviously. But if it's all that we do, uh, or we view it as a substitute for partner practice, I, I, I don't believe that it'll... Um, help you know it, 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 it needs to be part of a, a a process and this idea that solo cat will somehow naturally manifest i don't believe it if you've done the full process then yeah sure it will you know what i mean you've developed lots of good habits that will hopefully naturally come to the fore but uh, without the full process i can't see that working question seven is from rick grush have you ever used training tools such as airsoft guns, shock knives, real riot sticks or other painful but not lethal tools in training. Do you have thoughts on their use in training? Um, I've never used them. Um, a couple of, I mean, one reason is, which um, I don't know where Rick's from, but like the shock knives and things are illegal in the UK. Um, the, the UK has uh, some of, I'm, I'm told, uh, uh, the, the world's strictest weapon laws with the exception of Japan. Uh, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But I know certainly our weapons laws are extremely strict. Um, and we have one of the lowest worths of kind of gun crime and weapon defences anywhere in the world as well, you see. You know, we have the advantage of being an island, so there's not many guns on it and they're pretty easy to keep off. Um, so things like shock knives, we're not allowed to use, you see. Also, um, there's also the legalities of it as well from the instructional point of view, that if I were to use, say, real riot sticks and a student gets injured, uh, I would be legally responsible for that. Um, so a lot of the times now is when you know we're filling out our insurance forms, they want to know uh, what weapons you're using and how you intend to use them. So I've never used those those items. I, I, we've got padded sticks that we'll use, and we've got the kind of rubber knives, and we've got the kind of rubber guns and all that kind of stuff. Uh, in terms of my thoughts, I think they can be quite useful, in certainly in terms of the shock knives, which is what they're designed to do, because it induces the adrenaline, you know, because there's a fear of getting touched by it, which may not be present if you've got that kind of, you know, the rubber knife there. So whether that would be something that, you know, the rank and file would want to get involved with, I don't know, but I can certainly see the benefit for the higher level martial artist and for... Uh, the you know military personnel that kind of stuff and, and police I can see that they would be very useful again for that in it's you know safe but it'll in 
adrenaline inducing but i think there's other ways to get around it and we've always got to be careful that we do take care of our um students as well i think question eight is from rick evans he says hi ian did ground fighting exist within karate do you teach any ground fighting within your karate training um well did it exist uh yeah but again it depends what you mean by ground fighting so i'll get just quick the jumps to mind in funakoshi's book uh karate door uh, my way of life he talks about how uh, he as a young boy you know training in okinawa would have people try and pin him to the ground and he would try and fight his way back up so in some cases one person would pin him in other cases more than one uh, so that kind of stuff is what i think is good self-defense training for groundwork you know you hit the ground you need the skills to get back up right um, that was practice. Funakoshi tells us it was practice. So that should be part of our practice. When people think of ground fighting today, they often think of, you know, like pulling guard, you know, triangle chokes, um, uh, ankle locks, you know, knee bars, all this kind of stuff. And, and that was never part of the old school karate because it was a civilian system. It wasn't really relevant. That That's what you would use to outfight another fighter. Um, it's not what you'd need for self-defense. And to be pursuing ankle locks when you should be getting up off the ground, especially when there can be more than one and weapons involved, you know, is a dangerous tactic. Now, in terms of do I teach uh, ground fighting skills in the door? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and not just the traditional self-defense-based ones either. We do do um, holds and pins and escapes and leg locks and all that kind of stuff. Not to, you know, the degree that a judo player or a jiu-jitsu player would, but they're there for the martial arts side of training, you know, for the fun and enjoyment of it, and for the fighting side of training, you know, the kind of, you know, the one-on-one -on -one consensual exchange. So um, so groundwork of a type was part of the karate of the past, and today I would suggest that that should still be part of karate, and then my personal view is, through my experiences, you know, training with the judo and stuff like that, I want to bring some more ground fighting elements into what we do, even though it doesn't have direct relevance to self-defense, simply because it's it's fun and enjoyable. So um, it, 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 it should be there. And then, of course, up to any, any individual, the, the degree with which, the, how far they want to take that, you know. My primary love is striking techniques. Um, and when I'm teaching, that's primarily what I teach. You know, that, that's the, I don't know, put a figure on it, 60% of what we do. Whereas, you know, the kind of um, ground fighting, if you like, 10%. You know, whereas if you go to a judo club, obviously, or a BJJ club, it'll obviously be much, much higher than that. So, you know, they obviously do it to a much uh, greater degree of sophistication. Question nine's from Peter Jones. Uh, given all the various stances available in different styles, how many stances do you need for one effective style? <laughs> so that's, yeah, it's a good one, that. So my, my view of, as I, I talked about in previous podcasts, is that stances is a bad word. Because in English, it infers something still or static. The way I see stances are, they are snapshots of movement. So, for example, if you take front stance, which is the one that everyone normally learns first, it, that's teaching you to take your weight forwards. So if you say to a beginner, I want you to move your body weight forwards, they'll look at you and say, well, what the hell's my body weight? The higher grades get it because they understand the feeling of it. The lower grade, you need to say, well, straighten your back leg and bend your front leg and make your stance long. You know, that, that's how you'll do it. Put your feet far apart. And if they assume that posture, they've therefore moved the body weight forwards and down, right? So the practice of stances allows them to make that motion. Now, 
once you get to a certain point, you don't really think about those stances anymore. You just move through them. It's continuous movement. So it goes back to Nakasone's quote in Karate Do Taikan, where he said, uh, Karate has many stances, it also has none. And Funakoshi's uh, precept, where he said that beginners use stances, uh, advanced students use natural postures. And both of those relate to the fact that the advanced uh, student is still using stances, they're still there, but they're now part of fluid movement rather than snapshot positions. So in terms of how many do you need, well, you just need enough that you've gained the principle of movement. So, um, you know, you need to know how to drop your weight forwards, backwards, to left and right, straight down. You need to know how to take your body weight up, you know. Um, and then you've got the angles in there as well, I guess, you know. So, But it would vary on the individual. So how many examples do they need before they've internalised the concept? That, that would be the point. You don't need hundreds of stances as well. You know, I'd say at, at most 10 you know, before they've got the idea of, you know, the various ways in which the legs can be for positions, and then they need to be practicing kind of moving through them all. So I've never sat down and, and counted out and worked out a minimum, but it, it won't be that many. And we need to keep our eye on the objective. The idea of a stance is that we learn to move. And once we've learned to move, you know, okay, we've beyond that point where we need the, the fixed postures quite so much. Question 10 is from Aidan. He says, do you have or have you had a favourite kata? If so, what is it and why? Uh, Nahanshi, uh, which is what a lot of people would say Nahanshi Shodan. In the, the core style that I come from, uh, Wadaru Utsuka rejected the uh, Nidan and Sandan Nahanshis. He said they were worse than useless, I think, if I remember the quote, uh, which I don't necessarily agree with, by the way, but that's what he said where he said that the uh, Nahanshi Shodan, there was something profound about it, and it would take more than a lifetime to master. Um, so we only have that one uh, Nahanshi, which in my take on things is the original one, with the other two being variations on that one. Um, and I, the reason that I like it, several reasons. One is the techniques within it, I believe, are very efficient and functional. Uh, the Bunkai to it is one that I greatly enjoy. I think it's a great kata for teaching you to spiral um, your energy to, to make impact with very little body motion. Uh, I also have a, a romantic attachment to it because I dislocated my knee uh, practicing throwing a, a few years ago. And as a result of that, I, I couldn't kind of kick or pivot on it for about 12 months. I could, however, once I could stand up properly, I could do Nahanshi because it's all just sideways motion. So there was a time, I obviously couldn't train with a partner, there was a try, time where my training consisted of uh, the exercise bike, upper body weight lifting, and Nahanshi kata, and that was it. So I would do this kata, you know, 50 times in a session, for example, because it's only short, you know, and then I would do it with weights in my hands and without weights in my hands, and I would do it with tension and without tension and all these different ways to practice it. So it, it, I, I, because I spent, you know, for... A year and a bit, that was the only cutter I did. I've got a kind of, you know, um, personal attachment to it as well. So Nahanshi's my favourite cutter. Question 11 is from Graham McNulty. He says, what do you feel is the best ratio of physical to technical training? So that, that's, that's a good one, that, because uh, it's a difficult one because I don't see the two as necessarily being different. So in terms of my own training, some of the physical training I do isn't martially based. So I like, you know, weightlifting or running or the TRX stuff and all that kind of carry on, you know. Stretching, you know, it isn't that way. However, uh, 
for technical training, you can make your technical training your physical training. So in, if you come to my dojo, we do very little uh, press-ups and sit-ups and all that kind of stuff. You know, I'd rather, if they want to develop upper body strength, I'll get them to do some intense grappling drills. You know, if I want them to develop um, the kind of explosive leg strength, I'll get them to do some kicking drills. If I want them to develop endurance, I'll get them to do uh, long extended rounds of sparring or on the pads and stuff. So the technical training and the physical training are therefore linked. And, you know, there's no better exercise for kicking than kicking. There's no better exercise for punching than punching. The, the support stuff can just kind of, you know, help keep that physical condition. So the vast majority of what we do should be technical training. Uh, and some of that technical training obviously will have a physical component depending on the objectives as well. And then I would support that with small amounts of physical training. Um, you know, so things that will help just condition the body a little bit better and take it beyond what you could m probably achieve with just technique alone. But the, it should definitely be weighted heavily, 80% or so of technical training. But part of that technical training will be your physical training as well, you know. Um, so that's, you know, how I'd kind of answer that one. Question 12 is from Justin Lutz. And he says, uh, do you think you can overtrain the tradition side of karate rather than the practical? And does karate really work? Um, well, for the first one, yeah. It depends on your definition of traditional. Because... <laughs> Um, I see the traditional side of karate as being practical. Cause, but my definition of traditional might vary from somebody else's. When most people say traditional, they mean the karate from the 1940s and 50s onwards. You know, uh, When I say traditional, I like to think of beyond that. You know, so my dictionary defines tradition as uh, adhering to a long-established procedure. So my way of thinking would be the longer something's around, the more traditional it is. So therefore, I would say the way that I practice that includes, you know, grappling, cold strain striking, clinching, applications of forms, choke strangles, locks, all that kind of stuff. Uh, I would say that is traditional training uh, and therefore that is practical training. There's no difference. The two are the same. But I accept that others don't share those definitions and traditional training to them is marching up and down the hall and never hitting anything and uh, doing kata for its own sake and doing one-step sparring and five-step sparring that, that bears no resemblance to any form of conflict. Um, so in that case, could you overdo that and then not practice anything pragmatic? Certainly. You know, you could do a version of karate that will never bring you anywhere close to the realities of conflict. And, and you could label that as being traditional. And there are people who do that, you see. So, um, so can you overtrain the traditional side? Yes and no, depending on your definition of traditional, I guess. Um, and does karate really work? Well, it, it, this is the thing with it, you see. Is, yeah, I, I believe it does. I believe, but you don't, you don't use karate in a self-defense situation or a fight. It's me, you know. I do it and you do it. It's not, karate doesn't do it. I don't go, can I get my karate out my pocket and I'll hit you with that, you know. You, you, you use, it's, it's you that does it. So we've also got to accept that a big part of that is how we train with it and our own attributes on it as well. So yes, it can work. You know what I mean? Definitely it can work. I wouldn't practice it or teach it if I didn't believe that. Uh, that that my experience is that it can work, and with practice of it, you know, people can certainly have no trouble making it work. Um, but again, a lot of that would kind of depend upon how you train and what your definition of uh, of karate would be as well. And of course, as I've just mentioned, the uh, the individual component, you know.
Question 13 uh, is from Karate Kyo Han. And they Holger, say, my friend Holger from Germany, that's who that is. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> and his question is, how important is the concept of pen and sword to you? And is it inevitable to engage in it to become a good martial artist? Yes, that's a, a good question. See, originally, when um, we've, we've doctored that a little bit, he used a, a Japanese term for pen and sword that I'd never heard before. <laughs> so I had to kind of Google it, you see. So... Um, so he's, that, see, that's a good one. So the way I'm taking that to mean is, is it important to engage in academic study and obviously, you know, writing and communication, all that kind of stuff, of the martial arts in addition to just physical practice? And there's a split with it, right? So one of my best friend and training partners doesn't share my love of the history of it all. And he doesn't share my love of the, the research and... Um, all that kind of stuff. You know, I'll often explain something that I've been looking into or some historical fact I've come across and he'll smile and nod along and then go, yeah, it's very interesting, Ian, but it doesn't help me punch harder. You know, and then, and, you know, when you train the physical stuff, it works. So um, you don't necessarily need to have an understanding of the history of it in order to make it work. But here's the thing. The guy teaching you will need to have an understanding of the academic side of it in order to produce a good training programme in order to understand the training uh, things we've got, like kata, for example, in the correct historical and practical contexts. So it's not 100% necessary, in my view. People can become good, effective martial artists without it. But in terms of developing the martial arts, we need people who'll research, who'll swap ideas, who'll test things, who'll think about things, who'll exchange ideas, um, who'll, like I say, you know, dig deep in order to do these things because it's those people who do that that produce the material that the others can then use if they choose not to do it. So um, the martial arts need us to do it, but individual martial artists may or may not is how I'd kind of have answered that one. So, And the other thing with it as well, it's fun. I love all that stuff. I, I love all the, the history of it and, and that I find it fascinating. And I love searching up the physiological... Um, the psychology of it and the physiology of it. And I, I like all of that. And I think it's important. And, and because of that, I think I'm a, a better teacher as, res, as a result. Question 14 is from Brian Crichton. Uh, what are your thoughts around board or brick breaking in modern karate syllabuses? I, I don't do it in mine. Um, I have done it in practice. And uh, one of my instructors was uh, very down on it because he had severely messed up hands. Uh, so he always used to say, look, okay, you've proved you can do it. Don't do it anymore. You know, and there's a, you know, the famous, there's a Bruce Lee line, isn't there? Where boards don't hit back. And Utsuka, the founder of Wado said, we should be training to fight men, not trees, <laughs> which I kind of like that one, you know? So I don't think it's necessary. It can be a good confidence builder, but it doesn't replicate you know striking in reality it doesn't strike uh, the, the movement that's required and the ability to do impact and flow from one to the other so if people want to do it you know that, that that's that's great you know and, and if they gain from it good on them uh, but i could also see how people would choose okay i'm not going to do it so in my own teaching and training it's not something i i do anymore because i believe there's better ways to to learn how to hit and to gain confidence that you can hit hard you know um you don't need to use bricks and boards to do that. Uh, question 15 and 16, they're both quite similar. Uh, Shingatai Karate asks, could you talk about the specific aspects of female self-defence? This leads on to uh, Karen Gad's question. 
Now, given that karate seems to focus on street self-defence, do you feel it helps women to study it, bearing in mind the differences in the violence that they may face? Yes, I think this is key, this. I think last time we did one of these Q&A podcasts, I think that came up then, as I remember. The, the one thing is that, you know, statistically, you know, just if you look at the data, there are differences between the violence that men face and women face. It's not totally different, you know, I mean, but the, 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 there's definitely differences. So... As I remember, uh, the last time I kind of looked at these, uh, it was a British crime survey statistics. And in the UK, the most likely way for both men and women to be killed was to be stabbed. All right. Now, if we take that to one side, um, after that, the most likely way for a woman to be killed was to be strangled. The most likely way for a man to be killed was to be kicked or punched to death. The most likely place for a man to die uh, was uh, in a place that serves alcohol, around a place that serves alcohol, right? The most likely place for a woman to die was her own home. The most likely person to kill a male was somebody uh, completely unknown to them, a stranger. The most likely person to kill a female was their uh, husband or their lover. Um, so they are different, you know, they are the different kinds of violence are faced. So when men, because it tends to be men who do teach, we need a lot more women self-protection instructors teaching things from a women perspective, I find. But when men teach it, I mean, you can see this, you know, all the time they talk about street fights and bar fights. Well, that's, again, where does it happen for men? You know, in or around places that serve alcohol. So they kind of tend to focus on that way of doing things. Because for women, it's different. So uh, women, if we're talking about real self-protection, need education... Uh, in the you know the dynamics of abusive relationships, how to spot those relationships early on, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> how to avoid those um, kind of relationships, and if you find yourself in one, how to get out of it. You know, these are things that I think are far more useful than you know um, punches and kicking. I mean, and even then again, when you get to the physical side of it, there are differences. So um, you know, when men do it, they tend to concentrate on the kicking and punching element. For 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 women, again, there's those defences against kind of strangulation techniques and are obviously going to be more uh, more appropriate. So is it worth them studying karate? Absolutely. But the instructor needs to make sure that when they teach, they are aware of the fact there are differences between the violence faced by males and females and they teach accordingly. And I think this is why we definitely need, um, because more female self-protection instructors, you know, stepping up and saying, okay... This is, you know, been the experiences of hard. This is what works. This is what doesn't work. This is how we're going to teach. Because at the moment, there's definitely a strong uh, male bias, and I think that that definitely does cause problems for female students. I think unintentionally, but it's definitely there, and and you can see it in all the literature and all the language. You know, again, they'll talk. Just you know, you'll see it. There's a thousand and one books on street fights. We talked about that in the last podcast, and. All that kind of stuff. But that male bias self-defence and the female side of things definitely needs to be covered more than it's been currently done. Question 17 is from Ali Whitock, and he says, Do you see the mainstream karate organisations ever coming round to a realistic and practical approach to bunkai, or will they remain stuck in the karate versus karate mindset we see at national and international karate competitions? For example, pandering to the tradition of bunkai using athletic, gymnastic, movie-type setups. Yeah, I, I, I get that. You know, in uh, karate competitions, um, kata competitions, in the team finals, for the last few years, they've had this idea that they have to demonstrate bunkai. 
And of course, what they do is they demonstrate the kind of bunkai that will see them win. So we don't see anything that's practical or functional, really. We tend to see them using uh, the first couple of karate movements in, you know, that kind of long-distance karate versus karate fashion. Uh, and then they'll put some fancy kick or sweep or takedown or something on the end of it, you see. You know, and the audience, you know, kind of loves it. And, you know, I have no problem with that. That's that's obviously, that's that's the game that they're playing. You know, the, the kata should be visually impressive. And then, obviously, the bunkai kind of follows suit. Um, you know, I remember, just a little story, but I remember years ago going to see the Shaolin monks do a, a demo. And a friend of mine kind of commented uh, at the halfway stage that had gone to see it with us. He went, uh, it's not very realistic, is it? You know? And then someone else that was with us said, yeah, yeah, well, you know, it's not very realistic, but if you want to see two hours of eye gouging, I can just take you to one of the local pubs if you want, you know. So I get why, um, for entertainment purposes, you know, to um, get the spectators involved. And so if you do things that are flash and flamboyant. However, that's not the bunkai that we know, you know. It's, it's for a different purpose, and it's not traditional bunkai. Um, and it's not what I would suggest the majority are wishing to practice. You know, how many of us end up in, you know, international level team finals? You know, it just doesn't happen. The vast majority of people start because they want something that's going to work for them. So it's the pragmatic stuff that, you know, we should be teaching kind of first and foremost. As regards, you know, the idea of uh, mainstream, and when Ali wrote that question, I noticed he's put mainstream in speech brackets. <laughs> um they, I don't think they're going to have a choice but to change. And here's my reasoning why. is because um, everywhere that I go, you know, and I travel an awful lot, is that uh, people are uh, coming into karate and more and more educated than ever they were. And the people within karate are more and more educated than ever they were. We're in the information age where people can find out things very quickly. They're not just reliant on their instructor. So the alternative to the impractical is the practical. And it's readily available to anyone who wants to see it. So, you know, you, you'll type in the words bunkai into YouTube, for example, and you'll see these team final stuffs, but you'll also see, you know, some good close-range pragmatic stuff. There's lots of it out there. And then, so, of course, the student wants that. So if, if they realise that's not where their instructor's teaching, they get disheartened. So what's happening in the UK, what I can see, is the organisations that permit and encourage uh, the kind of closer-range practical stuff are growing in numbers. The organisations that kind of try to, you know, like King Canute holding back the tide and try and kind of um, stick with uh, modern traditionalism, if I can use that term, uh, their their numbers are dropping. So you've got a choice, really. Their numbers will either get so small that they'll become irrelevant and drop out of existence, or they can kind of, you know, go with the the, the flow and, and ensure that this is the kind of karate that they are um, practicing, you know. And we, we do see that move back. So I think, I've, I've said this before, you know, give it 10, 15 years, um, what the kind of karate that, that, that I do, that the people who listen to this podcast do, that will be the mainstream. You know, we won't have these discussions anymore about, you know, the 3K karate versus pragmatic karate because the 3K won't be there anymore. It'll be regarded as one a, a, a historical blip where we went from impractical sorry practical to impractical and then back to practical again um i I, I can't see it being around in the longer term because just you know people just don't want that anymore it's just just, just, just not what people want so yeah i I, again give it to say 10 15 maybe 20 years and um this discussion won't you know we won't be having these kind of discussions anymore i don't think question 18 is from dan phillip uh, I know you've done a lot on the striking arts and wanting to include more grappling into their training. 
I would be interested, I'd be quite interested in your views on going the other way around. So how to go about integrating more striking into the training of grappling and locking arts? That's a good point that you see. And there, there are, I mean, people forget this, you know, like uh, Aikido. Um, Shiba, you know, founder of Aikido, said that Aikido was 90% striking. You know, what the hell happened there? You know, I mean, how, how much striking do you, know, do you see in Aikido these days? You know, it's very little. You look back at the old kind of um, judo textbooks and the striking techniques within there, you know. Um, interestingly, Kano, in some of his writings, is quite critical of some of the postures assumed in modern judo because it makes you vulnerable to being struck, you know, like head forwards and arms down, that kind of stuff. Um, so, and it's like it else, you know, the, the karate and boxing and loads of other arts went from being... Uh, holistic art with an emphasis on striking into striking only and you've seen the other thing happen with the grappling arts they always did have striking in them but that's been dropped as they've emphasized the uh, the grappling side so in terms of you know how you'd go about it it well depends on which art you study I guess if you were an Aikido practitioner I'd be wanting to look at the older material and try and bring some of the strikes that were being used back into practice if I was a judo practitioner, I'd be again looking at the old kind of textbooks and I'd be wanting to kind of bring that that, uh, that practice back in. In addition to that, I would also start studying with strikers um, because obviously they, that's what they do, you know, and, and start finding out the core skills that fit well with your existing skill set. Um, for self-defense purposes, you know, if you're, a, you know, say you were a judo player, you only need a handful of strikes. You know, you, you teach them a, a good preemptive strike, you know, um, you know, jab across a hook, you know, or, or, the, or the equivalent open hand equivalents, a couple of close range strikes, you know, headbutts, knees, and elbows, and you know, you're good to go because they've already got the the gripping skills and the throwing skills and the groundwork skills. So it, 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 it's easy enough to do, I think. Um, but interestingly, you don't see that many doing it. We do see a lot of strikers adding the grappling in. You don't see it so much the other way. And I think that's because the a lot of the grappling arts are now practiced purely as sports. Um, so they don't really consider the need to add that stuff in. So like the judo guys that I know and train with, you know, incredibly able guys in physically in incredibly great condition that have no problem defending themselves practically, you know. But if, if I was to talk to them about the practical use of certain techniques or just wouldn't be interested. It'd be like asking my tennis coach how I would use a serve in the street. You know, they just they wouldn't. Not that I have a tennis coach, by the way. I'm just using that as an example. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, it, 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 they wouldn't ask those questions. So the reason we probably don't see them doing it is it's just not relevant to the competitive objective that they've got. But there's no reason why they couldn't do it, and they would just follow the exact same process that Karateka have followed. Question 19 from Duncan Cox. I'm more than aware now at the stage I am that you need to practice all aspects of karate to become a rounded karateka. Bunkai and applications is something we lack in the dojo and mostly only done on courses with yourself. Can you recommend where to start and research material, books or DVDs for training at home? <laughs> well, I, I know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. Very. Um, uh, yeah, you could buy my stuff. <laughs> Um, but th th yeah, no. But th th I think a lot of people go through that. You know, they the want to do it, they want to uh, practice the applications, but they're not getting it from the dojo. But but so the obvious thing is we'll change dojo. But in a lot of cases, that's not really applicable either because the dojo's teaching good quality technique. The people there are nice people. Um, they, they, they've made friends there. They enjoy all this kind of stuff. So the dojo's given them a lot of what they want, but it's not covering this aspect. Um, so my my advice would be, and if you look back in the archives, we did a beginning Bunkai podcast 
maybe three or four years ago, maybe more, um, which covered this. But what I would, I would, my advice would be start study groups. So if there's two or three other people in the dojo that are also interested in that, say, okay, you know, why don't we get together, you know, wherever often it is, once a week, once a fortnight, you know, whatever it is, and practice some applications here. And then if you look at, there's loads of good material out there. So pick a form, pick somebody's material who you like, and just start working through it. Um, most martial artists are intelligent people and can, can get, you know, understand how to train this stuff and how to work it. And then just start practicing it you, you, yourself. So, and, you know, I mean, I joke saying buy my stuff, but there's not just, you know, my material. There's loads of people out there doing good stuff with cat application. Um, so, you know, use a bit of discernment, look at stuff, see if it rings true for you. If you like it, make use of it. If it doesn't, doesn't. And then if you try and get a little kind of study group going, even if it's just you and a training partner, uh, that will help immeasurably, you know, and then it'll act as a nice support to, you know, your normal, regular um, dojo training. So in terms of what specific books and, and videos and stuff, well, it just depends. It depends on where you are and what you want to do. Out of my stuff, nowadays, most people who are new to my material, if they practice the Pinans or Hians, start with the Pinan Hian series, the Complete Fighting System DVDs, because they're drills for the whole of that kata, those, those, that series of kata that they can just pick up and start practicing. So you can just say, okay, me and my mate, today we're going to practice drill one. And they can just work through it. So out of my material, that's where I would start. But, you know, um, look at what's out there, get a little study group going and, you know, just progress from there, really. Question 20 is from Keith Mooneyam. Ian, I would like to know more about the holistic aspect of kata. For example, one time I heard Teki was good for the lungs. No one seems to acknowledge these benefits and they keep putting a holistic tag on karate, which leads me to believe it's subjective and experience of one's training. I would love to hear your thoughts on this aspect. Years ago, this has gone back a long way, I remember reading an article in Fighters magazine, which is now defunct. Now, we're talking over 20 years ago here, and I can't remember the name of the guy for the life of me, but um, it was an interview, and he was saying that he looked at certain cat that almost like has been... Um, um, tai Chi based, you know, so, um, you know, this form would be good for your lungs, this form could be good if you had this medical condition, and, you know, that to me is, a, I don't support those ideas at all. If you're ill, you go to a doctor, you know what I mean? You don't start kind of trying to work out which cut that might cure your ailment, because it probably won't. But, uh, however, in terms of uh, the, if you like, the holistic benefits of cutter, uh, kata is short, intense exercise, which has been shown to have very positive health benefits. It requires a high degree of muscle control. It requires a high degree of mindfulness as well. You know, you need to be there and in the moment, which again has been shown to be uh, very beneficial for people. So I believe that the practice of kata, you know, in terms of it stretches muscles and we, we take deep postures and we shift from various angles and positions, we tense and relax the muscles, we, you know, we breathe in various ways. I believe that kata is definitely good for your health. You know, as, as a form of physical exercise, it's short, intense, it takes no equipment, very little space. It's a great form of exercise. But the analogy I always use is if I was to go on the punch bag and say I do 10 rounds on the punch bag, right? And I'm hitting the bag. Now, while I'm doing that, you know, my heart's pounding. I'm sweating. It's good for my lungs. It's good for my heart. It'll keep my weight loss down. It'll stop me, you know, help prevent developing conditions like diabetes and all this kind of stuff. It's good for my health. But those punches aren't designed to be good for my health. They're designed to be bad for somebody else's health. And I think that the same is true of kata. The motions in the kata 
while they may, and they will, they will make you um, healthier, that's not their primary purpose, or not what they were primarily designed for. They were designed not to improve your health, but to ruin somebody else's health. So um, that's kind of how I view it. I don't discount these secondary benefits, if I can use that term. You know, I think they're very valuable. You know, I mean, it's certainly something that I've got out of uh, practice. But, but again, I don't believe they were created for that specific purpose. You know, so that would be my kind of take on that, I think. Question 21 from Daniel Zuniga. My question will be regarding Keon or basic training. How much time would you consider to work on the basic body mechanics of techniques? I spend most of my time breaking down technique to improve it, then I test them against a resistant opponent, striking a moving target or a heavy target. It seems to me that if we spend more time trying to do the actual hitting or sparring, we neglect the proper understanding of the technique. Obviously only doing air punching and techniques against the air is bad. There has to be a balance to develop good technique and later test it. Yeah, no, so that's, that's a... It's a really good point, that. So I'm going to just kind of illustrate. I'm going to, a friend of mine uh, is a um, doesn't live in the UK, but he's a highly regarded uh, Krav Maga practitioner, very skilled, you know, um, very good martial artist. Now trained alongside him, very fit, very able. And he was telling me that um, a lot of the students he gets that come to a higher level don't start in Krav. They've started in another art, he said typically karate or something like that, and then they've moved across. He says, now because they've developed like uh, high degrees of body awareness through the basic karate training, they're therefore able to progress than higher levels than some of his students who come to him to Krav and they go, oh, I don't want to kind of, you know, learn about body mechanics and posture, just teach me to rip a machine gun off somebody, you know. He says, so they reach a limited level. And we had this discussion. I said it's really sad, really, that both arts can't, you know, generally speaking, uh, obviously there's always exceptions, but uh, don't deliver the full process. So, uh, you know, in karate, we have this thing of we spend ages and ages and ages building the strong foundations, but we don't build upwards. I remember having a conversation with Dave Hazard about this, and Dave said, you know, we, we build this strong foundation and we should be building skyscrapers. He says, but we don't even build bungalows. And the point people need to remember is you don't live in the foundations. The foundations need to be there, but the functional bit is above the foundations. So it, it's same for karate. If you build a foundation, you end up with nothing functional unless you start to you know build up. Um, in generally, I mean, obviously there's plenty of craft people I know who do kind of get the basics right down. So we're just talking in general terms. But if you start saying, "Oh, okay, we'll work right on you know functional stuff from day one." Um, Without trying to build a kind of solid kind of technical foundation below that, again, the foundation is not deep enough. They'll get to a certain height. You can't go any higher. Or the whole thing falls apart. So th there is a, a kind of a, um, a balance with it, I think. But it should all be linked. So like it, it, one of the things we do, um, I know largely speaking now, it's maybe not fashionable, but I do quite a bit of line work training in my dojo. The students go up and down the lines doing kind of kicks and punches and combinations and everything else. But the point is, just as Daniel was saying, it's not a dead end, though, because those techniques they do in the lines relate to our partner drills, they relate to our kata, they relate to our pad work drills, they relate to our sparring drills. So what the line work gives them is a chance to refine the motion with no external pressures. So they don't need to worry about hitting hard or not getting hit or where the other guy is. They can just concentrate on the physical motion. And then exactly as Daniel's suggesting, you kind of move it forwards. So the balance largely comes down to how an individual structures the training, you see. But we need to be mindful of this idea of dividing off basic training from everything else 
that's a, a modern fault. It's that, you know what I call that 3K karate, you know, kata, kion, and kumite, and never the three shall meet. You know, they're all se- practices, three separate disciplines. Um, what should happen is when you're hitting the pads, you're still thinking of those basic techniques. When you're sparring with your partner, you're still thinking of the basics. You're doing your kata and your partner drills, your kion, it's all the same stuff. Uh, and if you do that, then it naturally integrates and you don't get quite the same distinction. But I, I agree completely with what Daniel's saying. You know, you need to make sure those solid basics are in there, that people are very, very aware of their own body movement and mechanics. And we don't have this view, near enough isn't good enough. You know what I mean? We need to try and get it as exact as we can. Because it, it's only through doing that that we'll deliver this high level of training. But not developing technique to a high level just for the the art of it, although that can be a valid reason too, but because we know that what makes it more functional, you know, so the, the two don't necessarily need to be exclusive, I find. Uh, question 22 is from Dennis Walton. What are your thoughts on seeing famous karate masters demonstrating or teaching simplified sport karate applications to kata movements? Yeah, so it's a tricky one, that, because there's a lot of people out there, uh, master grades, you know, that I usually respect. You know, I mean, they're, they're great teachers, their abilities are beyond question, but I still disagree with them about the way that they interpret kata. You know, I believe that historically and practically it's wrong. And we have this kind of... We, 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 one of the things we've got to avoid in the martial arts is putting anybody, giving anybody the kind of role of deity. You know, making any person, like, infallible, because we all are. And, and part of the, the... It's almost, you know, the martial arts almost kind of foster this a little bit, is... When a guy reaches a high level, suddenly he can't be criticised for anything. You know, he must be doing absolutely everything right. And, and, and any critique is either regarded as not knowing your place, you know, it's you're getting overly um, egotistical, or you're insulting the, the other guy. And I don't think that's true. Is If you believe that someone is, is doing something incorrectly for good reason, then we have a right to challenge that. That's, you could still respect the individual massively. You know, but you can still believe that, well, on this instance, you're wrong. You know what I mean? The evidence that I have would suggest that you're wrong. Um, and I don't think people are being overly egotistical when they uh, they do that, nor are they kind of um, running down the other guy. It's just le- legitimate criticism needs to find a way into it somewhere. So, you know, again, I've seen, you know, people that I usually respect, you know, jumping over samurai swords when they're doing the bunkai and everything else. So I respect their abilities. I expect the skills that they've got, you know. But I don't believe the right on bunkai, and I think we should um, reserve the right to kind of critique things. You know, it's the only, it's the only way that we kind of keep martial arts open and honest. Um, and you can't have that idea. People aren't right just because they're high dang grades. They're right because they're right. You know. So what we do is, you know, people need to look at the information for themselves and determine it for themselves. If someone is correct, it should be self-evident. You know, it, the evidence should support that, not just the fact the guy's got a high rank. And by asking people to put forward evidence for things i don't believe we're being insulting or derogatory or anything else we're just doing what we should do um you know respecting people but treating them as human beings and not demigods our next question is from john rister Uh, is there any place in the modern world for karate and for learning kata with the arrival of mma um yeah, <laughs> would be the brief answer to that one. Uh, as I did, I, we did a podcast on this a little while ago. I think MMA is great. I think it's done a lot of ben- uh, of good stuff for the, the martial art. It's it, it shook things up in a way that, you know, was needed. Uh, there's lots of things that traditional martial artists could do well to learn from MMA. And I did do, to say, the podcast on uh, what traditional martial artists can learn from MMA. And it'll still be online if any of you haven't heard that one. 
but I don't believe it's kind of, you know, the, the end of evolution, if you like, that, you know, it, it's came and it's a perfect answer to everything. Like, I, I don't believe that it is. There, there, there's some people who MMA would never appeal to, you know. Um, someone in their, you know, mid-50s wanting to learn some kind of basic self-defense skills doesn't want to kind of step into a cage and learn how to, you know, choke people out with the legs and fight full contact. That, that's just not for them. Also, MMA as a sport, as opposed to practitioners of MMA, uh, isn't ideally suited to everything. You know, um, the, the emphasis on going to the ground and or, or deliberately t taking people there is a big mistake for self-defense purposes. It doesn't deal with weapons. It doesn't deal with multiple opponents or anything else. Now, of course, you know, you could take MMA techniques and training methods and apply it to those things, of course. I know plenty of people who do that very effectively, but you, you, it, there's no one kind of um, solution that kind of solves all problems. So uh, MMA is not for everybody due to matters of personal taste, and it's also not the uh, the ultimate solution to everything. So whatever, and I've said this before, people go to me, you know, what's the most effective martial art? And my answer that I'll give these days, it's whatever one you like the most. Because if you practice it and you, uh, and you like it, you like to practice it a lot, you'll keep coming back to it. And because you keep coming back to it, you'll get good at it. And that's how, you know, you'll be able to kind of apply it, you know, so long as it's taught with the right context and everything else. So, yeah, you know, we, we should all be very glad that MMA is here, but, you know, we should also be glad that it's not the only thing that's here. You know, there's a place for everything, I think. Question 24 from Simon Buck. Sensei, I'd like to know your thoughts on training for people who take up martial arts like karate at an older age. Having only started at the age of 45 and now being in my early 50s, I struggle with joint issues and lack of flexibility. Fortunately, my own sensei is sympathetic and it hasn't stopped me progressing just because I can't perform, for example, sidekicks at a particular height. Um, that's quite fortuitous because that question kind of ties into the last one, really, I guess. Um, no, this is the thing you say. There's a, there's a martial art for, for everybody, you know. So I, I started training when I was a child, you know, and I'm now in my kind of, you know, my 40s. And obviously the way I train now is differently to the way I did when I was a kid and it's certainly different to the way I train in my 20s. Um, some of the things I did in my I couldn't physically do them now. I used to train for one and a half hours and jog 13 miles home. <laughs> um, you know, it's just, there's no way I could do that. You know, I'd fall to bits. So, you know, you have to um, train in a way that's good for your health and is good for your body. As regards a flexibility issue, one of my, um, we've got two downgrades in my club that are in the 60s, uh, both of whom um, came to karate kind of particularly late, you know. Um, but you just it needs to fit the individual. So, you know, they the may not be the best high kickers in the world, but they can do, you know, good low kicks. And overall, the, the skills are, are good enough. So, for example, one of the guys that we've got is not a great kicker, but he's a, he's a really good puncher and he's an exceptional grappler. So, all in all, you know, he kind of he, he ticks all the boxes. So, I think you're lucky there, Simon, that you've got an instructor who's, who's going to teach you karate that's applicable to your age. Where some dojos will just go, okay, you know, you're 55 years old or whatever. You know, we want you to do it the same way as a 21-year-old bloke down the other end of the room. Um, you know, karate, martial arts should be for everybody. And if it's been taught right, you know, there's ways to be effective and ways to make things work at, at every, you know, age, you know. And we shouldn't just kind of go, oh, well, you can only teach a certain type of people at a certain age. So the trick is, you know, you listen to your own body and you train cleverly. There is a book um, which I, I got recently uh, called Martial Arts for the Over 40s, and I can't remember the name of the author. Um, I'm recording this in my office, and I'm looking at the shelf, and I can't see it. <laughs> um, but that might be one to kind of check out. So, you know, work on your flexibility. Um, don't do the kind of, you know, the big 
box split style stretches or anything like that. Just gentle yoga can be great for that, you know, uh, to to improve it. And you're very lucky that you've got a sensei that kind of will guide you through it. And you will become a very effective, competent martial artist if you stick with it. You know, age shouldn't be a a limitation. We've just got to train appropriately. Question twenty five from Alec Henry. What are all the katas you do? So I, I've reduced the number that that I I do. So, um, and I know more than I do, if you know what I mean. Because and but uh, the core ones are uh, the Pinan series, uh, Naihanshi, Kishanku, Sishan, Chinto, and Basai are the kind of my core ten. In addition to those, we have them as optional extra katas for uh, third dance and above. We have uh, uh, Wanshu, uh, Niseishi, Rohai, Jite, and Jion. Um, and they're kind of the main ones that you know I kind of work with. But my practice primarily these days focuses around those kind of first 10 that I, uh, that I mentioned. And you know, you don't need that many. I, I think if, when you've got the Pinan series and the Hanshi, that's enough. You know, it, it's just the other ones are kind of there for, uh, for interest, really, and uh, to see how they kind of support. So, um, yeah, but those are the ones that I do. Question 26 is from Greg Davies. He says, to what degree do we adapt and vary the techniques we choose to use dependent on the situation and how do we know if we have successfully met this criteria? For example, should we use certain techniques on a larger opponent than one our own size due to the physiological differences? Does the same go for encountering a knife-wielding attacker where certain techniques are not valid due to the nature of the situation, for example, chokes? How do we know when we are abiding by such principles so as to gain greater competency in our own self-protection and protection of loved ones? See, that's a a good point there, because there's two elements to that. So the first one, then, is... um, there's adapting the techniques to the uh, the scenario, uh, and see, and this is this is part of the problem. This is most people, uh, when they uh, practice, only have one test. So if you look at like uh, um, most karate clubs, for example, will spar one way. They'll have one way of sparring. So what that means is you learn the tactics that work in that one way. So whether that be you know just kicking and punching only or rule, but they'll have one way of sparring. What we should have is lots of different ways of sparring, okay? What, what I call kata-based sparring. So you'll have ones where you go, okay, in this drill, the guy's armed, you know what I mean? If he hits you with his left hand, we're going to count it as a knife wound. In this one, you're going to face two people. In this drill, we want you to close your eyes and you respond for the first punch. And you're not going to know if it was one people, two people, three people. On this one, you've got to work your way grappling up from the ground. Uh, in this one, you've got to get your loved one to the other corner of the room. This is something we do all the time in my dojo. So we have lots of lots of different live drills with lots of differing objectives. And what you find is the students get very good at going, right, what's the objective? How do I best achieve that objective? So therefore, they'll employ the right tactics. Um, most martial artists train one-on-one against someone of their own type. So Thai boxers fight Thai boxers, MMA fight MMA guys, judo guys fight judo guys, karate guys fight karate guys, and the techniques and tactics you would use in those scenarios aren't necessarily the right ones for self-defense. So that would be the first part of it. You've got to vary it lots. You know, vary the objective lots. The second part is, you know, uh, you're saying about the larger opponents and smaller opponents. Same thing. You know, by by drilling the techniques against a, a variety of people, you should learn what's applicable and, and what's not. And there also needs to be an element of learning what is applicable for you based on your particular physical attributes. So in uh, Anko Itosu, um, teacher of Funakoshi and, and others, and 
you know, um, founder, the creator of the Pinan Hian series. Uh, in his uh, ten precepts, he said that uh, we should we should learn the explanations of every move, and then decide how and when we'd use them when needed. So this is important, I think. So as we, you know, I teach my students to go, okay, here's the techniques we're going to learn. But then I, you give them drills and scenarios where they can try applying those techniques. And what they'll find is some are quite natural to them and will work well for them, and some won't. So they know the techniques well enough that when they go on to teach, they can teach them to someone who may want to make use of them. But they're, they're also able to discriminate against what works for them and what doesn't work for them. So I, I say I've got my theoretical knowledge box and my practical knowledge box. So the theoretical knowledge is everything that in theory I know how to do. And then the practical knowledge is the ones that work well for me with my kind of certain attributes. So, um, yeah, lots of scenarios. Try it on lots of different opponents and be very mindful of what works you for you as a, an individual, I think. Question 27 from Ian Cleveland. Uh, could we make a kata to fit our own style of martial art? Uh, absolutely, because that's what, you know, the katas we've got are... You know, we, we, martial artists tend to have this view that, you know, Moses came down from the mount with Ten Commandments and a list of kata, you know, it's a, they're almost like divine, they're God-given and we shouldn't alter them in any way. It's not the case, you know, human beings made them and we've changed them as we've gone, you know. Um, so there's no reason at all why, uh, if you wanted to make your own kata, for, you, you know, to, for either for instructional purposes for your students or to for your own personal practice, you know, do it. It can be a very fun exercise uh, in helping you to understand the cat that we already have as well. So, yeah, absolutely, you could do that. Uh, question 28 from Mackenzie D. Clevenger. Uh, what makes a school a McDojo, and how does one know if a place is good to train at? See, the term McDojo, I think, is an interesting one because it's it's became for a derogatory term, but I was talking with a guy when I was over in the US. He's from a good, well-run group, right? Good club professionally run facilities, good quality martial arts, good instructors, but also a good business model, which allowed them to pay for good instructors and good facilities and everything else, you see. But, like, you know, because they were successful financially as well as martially, they got the McDojo label from some. And he told me, he says, I quite like it, he said, because McDonald's is one of the most successful models in the entire world. You know, everybody likes it. Everybody knows what they're getting from, from there. You know, people go there because, you know, they, they like the food and they like the way it's served and everything else. So you know, it's, it's a fair point, you know. McDojo might not be the world's worst criticism, you know. Um, you know, you know what you're getting when you get there and you, it's, it's, it's so fine, you know. But in terms of how do you know if it's a good place to train at, well, you've got a problem there because you most people won't know. Most people, when they walk into the... Uh, the dojo have nothing to compare it to. So what I'd always advise anyone who is looking to take up a new martial art is don't go to the first club or the cheapest club or the nearest club. You know, you've got to invest in a lot of time in this, so go to a few. And hopefully, you know, unless you're totally surrounded by McDojos on all four sides, you'll quickly come to a club where you go, okay, these guys aren't giving me the hard sell and, you know, the, the financial... Commitment seems reasonable and, you know, they, they seem very competent. It's been taught well, you know. So I would suggest that you compare and contrast. Go to lots of different schools before you decide which one you want to train at. Question 29 is from Zach Hambly. Some say karate builds character. Others say it reveals your character. Which one do you think it is? And when we learn we need to improve something about our character, how do we go about it? Yeah, that, that, it's an interesting one, that, because... You know, people often say that martial arts uh, improve character, but I don't necessarily believe that's true. Uh, some of the most uh, insecure, 
uh, violent, petty people, you know, that I've ever met have been martial artists. Likewise, some of the nicest, compassionate, most kind of rounded individuals I've ever met have been martial artists. Uh, it just depends, you know. If, if you uh, go into a dojo where it's you know hard austere training, that has the effect of your ego quickly kind of gets put in control because you know you, you can't get you can't get big for your boots because it's a constant reminder you're about you know a fifth as cool as you think you are. You know you'll be pushed beyond your limits and you'll fail on a regular basis, and that stops you from getting too arrogant about yourself. You know it gives you a realistic view. And then likewise, of course, you know, you've got these austere challenges and if you meet them and match them, it's, you know, build self-esteem because you've achieved something difficult and very worthwhile. So I believe that martial arts can improve your character in that way. But you can also go to a dojo where the sensei effectively wants to be worshipped and adored, you know, that the t- training's not half enough, it's never austere, the, the, um, the, the kind of foster the view, you know, we're right and everyone else is wrong, you know, that kind of arrogance can do. And if there's no testing that applies, well, you know, that can run free. So I've, I've never seen any evidence for the fact that martial arts kind of improve character. The reveals character bit, I believe that could be right. But again, it depends on the nature of the training. It might um, not reveal character de- or it may, depending on how it's how it's done. So, um, again, harder steer training, you'll realise who that person is when they're not on the best game. Push them beyond the limits and you find out who you are and, and they are. Um, if you don't do that, you know, it's perfectly uh, possible to keep as- uh, char- parts of your character, you know, um, well hidden. And we again, the thing is, you just look at the news, there's, there's martial artists that have done, you know, terrible things, so... The idea that it improves character, I don't get. Trying to improve character will improve character, right? And you can you can do that through the martial arts. So if you have you know that hard austere training, and let's say take a simple example, you reach a point where it gets difficult and you choose to quit. So you've learnt through that this part of your character that will give up when things get difficult. So how do you improve that? Well, the next time you do it, you uh, try to re- stick with it for a bit longer. So you try to change the habits because that's essentially all our characters are. You know, it's, it's, it's you know our the way we'll behave in certain situations. It's the habits we've got. You know, the habits that make us uh, make up us. You know, if you had someone who did a drill and got like angry at the instructor, say because they couldn't do it, or angry at the partner because you know the they weren't able to fight well enough or whatever. You know, the next put yourself in that situation next time. You realise you made an error. Put yourself back in the situation and try and do it differently. Um, so training martial arts can be a good mirror and I believe that they can be good for character but that needs to be one of the intentions of, of, of training really um, it, practicing a martial arts won't automatically do that and there are people you know, who, who say that you know, I know some people who put a great emphasis on character but they have very little themselves you know and I know some people who don't place any emphasis on that, you know, they're just, okay, I, you know, I want to go there and I want to learn how to fight, who have lovely characters, you know, so um, there's not a direct link and it's, it's uh, you know, if we, if we want those those elements to be there, we need to kind of uh, bring them to the, the fore a little bit more. But yeah, push yourself, find out where you're failing. Uh, Jeff Thomas has got a lovely analogy, he says like, it's like a, uh, an inner tube on a push bike, you put it under the water and pump it up and then you see where the bubbles come from. But without the pressure of the the the, um, the the bike pump, without the pressure of inflating the tire, you never see the holes. So intense training can show you where those holes are, and then you patch those holes up. That that's that's how it should be. And martial arts can certainly be a vehicle for that that process. I think. Question thirty is from Brian Pettigrew. 
Do you think that it's more useful to study one kata completely rather than the contemporary approach, which requires a karateka to learn a plethora of kata? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, and you look back in in the past, it was that was the way it was done. Funakoshi said that. You know, he said in in the the past they studied narrow and deeply, whereas now they study wide. So you are better um, combatively, at least, studying one kata in great depth. How, however. That doesn't mean you need to get rid of them all because we've got this kind of um, historical library, if you like, that's been passed down to us. So one approach you could take is you could practice lots of kata, is in, um, by which I mean you've got a surface understanding of them, and then you choose to look at others in depth. So there's a third way as well. You, but so long as at some point you're doing some kata in depth, I think that's um, definitely more beneficial than you know, the superficial study of many. Question 31 is from Craig Stewart. He says, Hi Ian, my question would be, how do you motivate students to train at home? How do you keep your students coming back for more? Or how do you get or make the students train harder in class rather than just going through the motions? It's good coaching really, I think. But one thing that does need to be uh, bore in mind is, you know, there's that old saying, you know, you can lead a course to water, you can't make it drink. So you've got to convince them of the benefit of drinking. So like with regards to not drinking alcohol but you know what I mean just uh, water like could have quoted Motobu there I guess but um so like for example if you get someone to train at home and they uh if they do it and then they notice the improvements in class they're likely to continue doing it so it's, it's kind of pointing out to people that this kind of practice you will get this benefit from doing it and for some people they'll do that you know and, and and then when they've got the benefit of it they always used to I remember when I did my fitness instructor training years and years ago they used to tell us that if you can get someone to do something for six weeks, they'll probably do it forever. On the grounds that it normally takes six weeks before people kind of notice the benefit of something and are doing it like pretty much habitually. So if you say to someone, I want you to stretch, you know, every other day, it's hard to get them going. You know, if you say, I want you to stretch every other day for the next six weeks, you know, that can, oh, okay, I can do that because it's only six weeks. Normally by the end of that six week period, they can feel the benefits and are happy to continue that, that, practice really but one thing i think again you know so it's good coaching and there's lots of elements with that one thing we just do need to bear in mind is that martial arts instructors tend to be high achievers in the martial arts you know we're the people who've already got the black belts who love it to a degree and there needs to be an element of accepting that not every student loves it to that degree so we we do have a lot of students, the majority, who are recreational players. And I'm not good at teaching recreational students. It's not where my my heart lies. But I, I acknowledge there's a, a, a place for that. So for some people, they don't want to train at home. They want to come once, twice a week, spend some time with the friends, work up a bit of sweat and go home. And they should be allowed to do that, so long as they acknowledge that's not going to take them to the higher levels of martial arts. The guy who does train once a week and expects to be, you know, reach his fifth dan is deluding himself, or even his first dan or his middle Q grades, you know. Um, you know people can train on a minimal amount if that's what they, they want to do. And for those that don't, just try and, try and convince them of the benefits of it, you know, lead, lead them, them through that. And once they discover the benefits of having done that kind of stuff, they'll... they'll they'll notice it you know they'll, they'll, they'll keep doing it question 32 is from keith keffer why do so many of us still use japanese terms for techniques when it's not our native language <laughs> see I, I uh yeah absolutely i, I think one if you look at karate you know if we take a very basic and inaccurate history like okay you know it starts in china it moves to okinawa and when it does that they okinawanize it and then it goes to japan and then they, they make it suitable for the culture there and when it's came to the west we should do the same 
You know, I mean, it it, it comes to, you know, the Europe and America or Canada or wherever else, and we go, right, you know, we're going to make it ours, you know, just in the same way that continue that evolution that's always happened. And part of that may be choosing to say, right, I'm going to use English terms or whatever language, you know, is your primary language as opposed to Japanese terms. So, and I know some groups who don't use any Japanese terminology at all. Uh, And I've certainly reduced the amount that I use. However, it is still there. So I will, but we'll use them interchangeably. So for example, I'll say to my students, you know, okay, hit the pad with a cross. Or I might say hit the pad with a gakazuki. And the advantage of doing, keeping the Japanese terminology, um, which I found, certainly someone who travels a lot is, it becomes karate's universal language. So if I'm teaching in a country where uh, English isn't the first language, and the person in front of me doesn't speak English, I can use the Japanese terminology, and that's a common language we've got. So for me, I found keeping the Japanese terms to be useful. However, it shouldn't be uh, get to the point where it gets in the way of effective instruction. You know, so we, we spend, we, we explain, like for example, you, the example I, if you were to explain to a student mushin, the idea of having a flowing mind, you, you give them this Japanese term, and you then need to explain what it means. And to do that, you've got to almost explain it in a Japanese way. And it can confuse a student. If you tell the student to go with the flow, you know, which would be an English term equivalent, roughly, they'll get that. You know, so I think sometimes it's, it's a matter of, you know, um, it's nice to use both terminologies. Uh, there can be advantages in keeping the Japanese, but I agree with the point. You know, if, if we're not Japanese, sometimes it would be better to explain things, in, if you like, in native terms, because students will get that quicker, I think. Question 33 from Sama Bellamo. What are the most fascinating adaptions you have seen made by people with disabilities who practice the martial arts? I've seen some um, great ones. I used to teach a a guy who had one arm, you know what I mean, and and, uh, how he used to vary, and it was great, you know. um, We used to get him to do the cutters, so he'd he'd constantly be using his... uh, his, his left arm you know and then any technique you gave him he was very quick at kind of changing and adapting it to suit him you see so a lot of the time it was him that did the adapting as well you know because he was well aware of what his, his strengths and weaknesses were so th- that was pretty impressive uh, i've seen um a version of uh, 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 john johnson was telling me about a, a version of like nahanshi that he teaches that people can do entirely from a wheelchair uh, you know again with pra- pragmatic techniques that would work from uh, from that position so in, that's another kind of impressive thing. In ter- I don't know if it's fascinating, but I think one of the most impressive things I ever saw was I was once at um, Timely for this kind of year because at uh, Kendall Judo Club, which is the judo club that, that, that I trained at, uh, between Christmas and New Year, they have their winter camp. And this is like super intense, super hard training. You know, they're up at six o'clock in the morning for Andori and groundwork. They're out running through the frozen woods with logs and all kinds of stuff. You know, this is, it's intense stuff, you know. And I was, uh, I was there once and uh, Mike uh, Liptrot, who's my uh, judo coach, he'd asked me to take some photographs and do a bit of filming there as well. So I was doing this and I was filming up on the top. And these uh, two guys kind of come out, you know, there's a mat full of people doing randori. Half are watching, half are on the mat. Big, big mats, you know. And probably 70, 80 judica training there, I think. And this guy uh, takes a grip, does a beautiful kataguruma, throws this guy up on the shoulder, flies through the air. The guy lands and he walks away without even looking. 
you know, there's people at the side of the mat, you know, you can hear the <gasps> as he does it, you know, I've got this on video and people are applauding, beautiful throw, you know, um, anyway, so I'd finished, I'm talking to one of the, the guys who, uh, about it, I say, incredible throw that, wasn't it, and he goes, yeah, did you know that guy was blind? <laughs> nope, no idea, and you watching the footage back, the only way I can tell is, he kind of, he waits till he's got the grip before he moves, you know, um, the guy allows him to get the grip. Other than that, there'd be no way of knowing the difference. The technique's absolutely kind of beautiful. So, yeah, you know, there's, there's, there's lots of ways. That, you know, like I said, it should be for everybody. And the, um, there's no reason at all why disabled people can't do it. They've just got to adapt it for them. Question 34 from Chris Clarkin. Uh, what tips would you give to a beginner? Find a good school would be the number one tip because everything else is going to flow from that. So uh, don't settle for the first school you go to. Try a few out visit a few and when you found a, a club that you know that you're happy with that the people there you like you know your instructor's good then kind of stick with that but everything else will flow from that so for, for, the, for the beginning it would be number one find a good club and then after that everything will take care of itself really a question 35 from richard stanton hi ian in our club we have a number of teenage girls would you agree they are particularly vulnerable and what tips could you give to try and get them to take training a bit more seriously without scaring them to death I'm trying to introduce some more realistic forms of training, but usually find that it dissolves into fits of laughter, especially when the groin is mentioned as a target area. P.S. Thank you for opening my eyes as to what Kata really is about. As, as regards um, that the particularly vulnerable, I think the statistics would kind of bear that out. From the UK, you know, the crime stats, uh, the older you are, the less likely you are to be a victim of violence. Um, as I, I'm doing this from memory, but as I remember, I think people in the 70s, it was something like half a percent, you know, whereas people in the 16 to 24 age bracket, it was 8% will be a victim of crime, uh, violent crime within any year. And uh, this is primarily, of course, due to kind of, you know, the, the way that, you know, you live your life when you're younger. So if they're, you know, hanging around kind of, you know, bars and that kind of stuff, you know what I mean? And that that's primarily what the socialising is. And of course, you've got, you know, we all know this, when you're younger, you tend to get more mellow the older you get and you realise what's important and what's not important. So, um, But yeah, statistically, again, yes, you know, there, there would be that thing that um, it's, there's not as well, just there's not a great difference between men and women on those figures either. But it's I think it was 8% overall. For uh, and it was eleven percent for males, which would suggest, you know, obviously that it's more men than girls. But yes, you know, statistically they are more vulnerable. Uh, in terms of you know how to get them to take it seriously, because this is something that you're introducing that's new. Uh, I would the fits of laughter are probably because they feel uncomfortable with it. Uh, so often we'll 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 do that. We'll we'll use humour to to mask that. So I've had that, you know, I've taught in places and we, you, as soon as you get kind of close range or you behave in intimidating fashions or you get them to replicate, you know, pushing, shoving, shouting, all that kind of stuff, they'll burst out laughing. Not because it's particularly funny, it's because they find they're uncomfortable and humour's a way to kind of dissolve that, I think. So um, I, I think acknowledging that the reason they're laughing is probably because they're a little bit uncomfortable with it. So, and as you, you allude to in your question, there's therefore a balance, isn't there? Because if you kind of try and make them take it super seriously you'll make them feel more uncomfortable so i would suggest you know the easy thing to do is you know just okay yeah okay i get that it's funny but practice it anyway you know and the more experience they get of doing it the more practice they have of it the, the, the less likely they are to feel uncomfortable with it and they're therefore the less likely the the, the, the laughter is going to be there uh, also the fact is if they're doing it as a group that can be an issue as well so if you've got 
young girls practicing with other young girls again you know it's more likely to dissolve into um fits of laughter but if you got them to you know practice with other people that you trust say some of the older women in the group if they were to practice with those and pair them off that might help as well because they're going to see you know them them taking it seriously so they're more likely to but i would suggest that you just stick with it and let them have the little laughs and giggles for the time being because you know that'll go if you know if, if you stick with it in time it'll kind of pass so so thinking in my dojo some of the ferocious people i've got in there are the teenage girls you know so it's just um it's just kind of a, a practice i guess you know and, and them, them getting used to it but you're not alone on that and i've certainly heard about that problem from from lots of people so but i wouldn't again if it was me you know my advice would be not to be overly um unhappy that they're laughing and giggling because it's probably just a sign of discomfort um, and that'll pass as they get more comfortable with it. A question 36 is from Sajid Ramiz. What is your opinion on studying many karate styles and learning from all of them rather than studying only one style? So, I'm a great believer in that. Any of that have been to the seminars will know that I use that, an elephant analogy to talk about um, uh, various styles of kata. So what I say is, if you know your styles, because, you know, we, we do this. We say, like, oh, you've got Shotokan Kata and Shitoryu Kata. We haven't. We've got Kata as practiced by Shotokan, Kata as practiced by Shitoryu, you know, Kata as practiced by Wado. The Katas were around before the styles were. What you've got in the modern styles are, you know, style-based variations. So if you are aware of more of those style-based variations, you have a better understanding of the Kata as a whole. You know, you're seeing it from different directions. So I, I use the analogy of, you know, the five blind men going to an elephant for the first time. So one feels its leg and says, oh, like, elephants are like trees. And one feels the side of its body and thinks an elephant's like a wall. And one feels its trunk and goes, an elephant's like a snake. And then one feels its tail and thinks, you know, an elephant's like a bit of frayed rope. And the final guy feels all over the elephant and goes, I get it. Elephants are like elephants. So when we study just our version of a kata, we're like one of the first four blind men. What we're experiencing is a truth, but it's a partial truth because we're only seeing it from one aspect. So I think by, by exposing yourself to different styles, your understanding of karate as a whole improves. Um, now, but by that, I don't mean you have to get a black belt in every single style. You know, you can, you, you, you can stick to your core style. Just, you know, if you're a Shotokan practitioner, have a look at how Shitoryu do the, their versions of your kata. You know, buy a few books or look on YouTube or, you know, go to a few lessons and or, you know, get your instructor to invite someone in from a different style to go through a few katas. I was lucky because my instructor always did that. Our core was Wado, but we regularly had instructors from other styles coming in. So I gained an appreciation of the other kata. And I used to kata judge as well um, at, at uh, you know, quite a high level. I was, you know, the Tommy chief level for national championships and stuff. Um, uh, and that helped, you know, just to gain a wider experience of the various forms of, of kata. So I think, yeah, it's very beneficial. So you don't need to get a downgrade in every one, just simply, you know, acknowledging that the other styles have got that. Then look, and, you know, why do they do that a little bit differently? And why do we do that this way? Because I've had some real insights to kata through doing that. Ah, when you see the way they do it, it looks very much like that. And I can see that this is probably what my kata is showing, you know. Um, so, yeah, definitely a good thing to do. And our last question is from Ali Whitock, and he says, have you ever felt demotivated? And if so, then what or who motivated you? Um, yeah, absolutely, have I felt demotivated. Uh, this can be due to um, a performance has been subpar for a little while, for whatever reason. 
or it can be down to I've been injured or ill, you know, so I haven't felt like training. I could have had, you know, problems going on in my life generally, which have made me not want to go training, you know, I felt that all the time. Uh, the trick to me is to train anyway, because I've never had a situation where I felt bad for training. You know, I, um, sometimes, you know, at certain points in my life, I had to force myself, you know what I mean? Like, taking every ounce of will just to get myself to the gym or get myself to the dojo, you know, because everything in me just doesn't want to do it. But having done it, I've always felt better for doing it. So I've learned that that's the case. You know, I always feel better for having trained. So it's not so much that I suddenly felt, oh, I feel motivated again. I just forced myself to do it. And, you know, I think that's something we need to, you know, we're not always going to enjoy training. There's going to be days where we don't. You can pick anyone who's, you know, brilliant at anything, you know, high level at anything. There must be days where they think, you know what, I'm sick of doing this. You know, professional golfers must get sick of practicing the strokes and, you know, um, professional swimmers must, you know, must get sick of swimming early in the mornings and everything else. You know, but you just work through that, I think, is, is the thing. And then normally, again, if you do stick with it, you get the good performances and the, the good days and the days where you, you can't wait to, to, to get back into it again. So that, that's my way. And I remember reading a book years ago by uh, Lauren Christensen um, on solo training. I don't think that, I think it's called The Way Alone, it was called. And I think in that one, he mentions that, you know, if you reach those points where you think, oh, I just can't do it. He says, what you need to do is, in his view, he says he would just take a week off. So he goes, right, I'm not going to train for this week and for this week, but I am going to read my martial arts magazines. I'm going to watch a few movies. I'm going to read my, my uh, watch some training DVDs, all that kind of stuff. Nowadays, you, you know, you go online and watch training stuff. He says, normally, he says, it'll start to spark the desire to train again. And his advice was, you know, not to give in to that, but wait that full week. And at the end of the full week, you kind of can't wait. You know, that, that was kind of, so that may work for some people. Uh, but for me, it was just a case of, you know, just get back into it. And then normally, as soon as I've done it, I feel better for, for having done so. And we all need to accept that there are times in training where we just don't want to do it, you know, but we should do it anyway. You know, that, that's what will separate the great from the, you know, the, the good really and the good from the mediocre is just, you know, just keep turning up. If you keep turning up, you'll keep getting better. Um, I think that's it, isn't it? I think that's all the questions. Yeah, that was our last one. Yeah, so um, what? Um, thanks to everyone who submitted those. There was more as well, but we kind of we worked out that was probably the number we'd get through, uh, and we're sitting at uh, an hour and a half now. So um, it's <laughs> probably you know all you can bear. But um, but thank you. If we didn't get to yours, I'm very sorry, and we'll, we'll certainly make sure that uh, you know next time around uh, we'll do another one of these in a few months' time and. Uh, um, hopefully you'll get your question included then but I hope you all enjoyed that and um, yeah, thanks for sticking with it Well I hope you enjoyed that and found that of some value uh, thanks to everyone who submitted questions including those that we weren't able to get to and thanks to Becky of course for asking me those questions um, we'll be back early next year with a normal uh, kind of podcast. You know, we've got a few themes in mind and I'll obviously uh, let you know about that nearer the time. Uh, I'd like to conclude just by thanking you all for your support, uh, for every Facebook post that you've liked, every tweet you've retweeted, um, every, you know, especially the people who come along to the seminars because it's great to make contact uh, face-to-face. 
Um, you know, I, I, I really do appreciate all your support. Um, those who've bought the downloads and the DVDs and that kind of stuff, I, I, it really means a lot that you value what I do. And obviously through your support, in whatever form you give it, you're able to help me kind of continue to do what I do and to put out, you know, the podcasts such as this. As I've said, you know, these podcasts are free to anyone who wants to listen to them, but they're not free to make. So it's those who kind of help spread the word and, and support the seminars and everything else that, that make all this possible. So hopefully, again, I'll get to see you in 2014. We're fully booked uh, in terms of seminar dates, so... I'm going to be pretty busy on that front in, in 2014. So if you take a look on the website, you'll see the seminar dates for the early part of the year. And obviously, if you subscribe to the newsletters, uh, you'll get to know about all the, uh, the seminars um, as, as and when those details become available. So, yeah, it'd be brilliant if we can meet up and chat in person as well. So thank you once again. You know, you know, have a very Merry Christmas. I hope you're really enjoying yourself at this time of year. And I hope that 2014 proves to be your best year yet. So thank you for all the support. Uh, again, thanks for listening. And I'll see you early next year. Bye now. Bye-bye.